This week's episode of the Board Game Design Lab is brought to you by Fisher Heaton Games. Their newest game, Garden Bow, hit Kickstarter this week. It's a two to four player tableau building garden growing game where players build a three dimensional tableau growing plants from seedlings to fully grown flowers. Designed by David Abelson and Alex Johns, the game plays in about 45 minutes and may be enjoyed by friends and families alike. And in an effort to give back to the environment, they're planting one tree for every copy of the game sold. So be sure to check out the Kickstarter campaign for Garden Bow by Fisher Heaton Games today. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about games that teach you something. We're talking about fun games that also happen to have a little educational spin to them. And we're talking to John Covey from Genius Games. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat about games. Yeah, man, I'm excited to have you here. You, you come from a totally different angle than almost anybody else in the board gaming industry where you have these amazing games that are super fun, but also, you know, they, they come at the hard sciences in some really cool perspectives, whether we're talking about elements or chemistry or biology or everything in between. You've kind of right. found this really awesome niche um, for, for these types of games. And, and not only are they fun, they also, you know, teach things here and there. But uh, I'm excited right. to kind of get into your process and how you come up with these things and how you turn ideas in the real world into games. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Yeah, so um, I have been a board game enthusiast for for many years. I mean, so, you know, when, when I was a kid, it started out with Monopoly and Clue and Sorry. And so, I mean, most people have played those. But then it got serious right around the time I first started playing some of the um, games that came over from Europe. I, I, I think uh, Dominion and um, and Catan obviously were the two of the really early ones that that got introduced into the U.S. market. And so um, when I started playing those, I realized like, wow, there's a there's a whole new level of tabletop experiences here. Um, and, and actually, maybe I should even say before that, I got into D and D for for quite a while. Um, and as a, um, as a young kid, I think, you know, 11, 12, 13, I started playing a lot of D and D and just saw this, this, uh, this whole new experience you could have with, with pen and paper and really wanted to try. And even at that point, you know, I, I started thinking about making some games of my own based upon the, the narratives that I saw in there. And, uh, one Christmas, my brother and I got hero quest, which, which was, um, we, I don't think we ever played it by the real rules. It was just kind of cool to have like the, the, um, the map there that you're moving through and the little figurines and things like that. And so we would just, you know, battle and that, I don't, but I don't know if we ever actually played by the rules, but then fast forward for a while. Um, it, it was, it was just a light hobby until I was getting my degree. My, my undergraduate degree is in environmental biology or environmental studies with a concentration in biology. And then I, I did a master's degree in uh, chemical and environmental engineering. And through that process, I just got really interested in games that um, were, were like hobby, strategic focused games, but were um, themed around the sciences. And um, uh, the, the one that got me kind of excited was Compounded, um, which at that point was probably the closest thing to, to what we're doing currently. And I saw that it made, you know, a hundred and 
I think $180,000 or something like that on Kickstarter. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I you know, I kind of thought that maybe this, this whole genre of games already existed because I saw that and I wanted to go find them and I wanted to play them because I've been a huge science nerd for so long. And um, when I got out there and started looking for them, I realized that they really don't, they don't exist. Um, and and um, I actually played, I taught chemistry for a little while and um, played compounded with some of my chemistry students. And it was great to play a game that was that, um, I mean, it compounded's not that heavy, but it's much heavier than most of the um, the mass market stuff that that we were seeing at that time. Um, and to see a game with, with, with such accurate chemistry, not, not everything's entirely accurate. You know, there are a few things that, um, they take some liberties on, but, um, but yeah, to have a game like that, it just very, um, inspirational. So I took a shot at it and, you know, the first, the first few times you make an actual game that you want to publish, um, you realize how far off you are from actually being a competent designer. Um, I, my first few prototypes were just, uh, it's just painful. I don't even, I wouldn't even want to go back and try and play them at this point. Um, but you know, I, I got better because I started reading lots and lots of design blogs. Um, I started pushing myself through what I would call design sprints. Um, and I, I teach uh, board game design at a university here in St. Louis now. And I actually use these, this kind of the same philosophy or, or pedagogy, if you will that I put myself through, I use with my own students. And so I, I would, um, these design sprints, what I would do is I would um, give myself essentially a, a, a few components, say um, six dice or 12 cards. And I had to make a game out of just those six dice. And then um, I would toss it on the shelf and then make an, a totally new game and toss it on the shelf and make a totally new game. And we can get into the, in, into more about why I was doing that and, and all of that if, if you'd like. But um uh, through that process, took a bunch of these little mini games to a board game prototype meetup that was hosted here in St. Louis that a number of people um, would would attend on a regular basis and would get feedback from from other designers uh, here in St. Louis. And through that process of making lots of games, getting myself out there, getting feedback, and really, really listening to to others and learning from others, I became a, a better um, better designer. And then 2014 was when I launched my first game on Kickstarter, and that was for a game called Linkage, a DNA card game. We needed, I, I think at that point, you know, 2014, it was a, uh, Kickstarter was a totally different thing back then compared to what it is now. Um, we needed three and a half thousand dollars, I want to say, to publish this game, and we ended up raising a little over 12,000. Um, and uh, that was sort of the, the, um, the first introduction into me being able to take this seriously and actually turn it into not just a hobby, but, but a vocation. And, um, that was what four and a half years ago and the rest is kind of history. Yeah. Very cool. And so let's, let's actually talk about those designs for I've had sev uh, several yeah. guests in the past kind of talk about these things. And a lot of them have talked about, you know, it's, it's almost like exercise, right? It's just a way to grow, yes. to get better. And, and it's almost like drills. I, I equate it to football. You know, if you want to play a sport really well, then you have to practice and you got to do these little drills that kind of, you know, take the game and put it in a bite-sized chunk. And they say, okay, you're just going to catch the football from this angle a hundred times. That way, if it ever happens in a game, you know how to do it. And so like, right. tell me yep. your, your process, your thinking for these design sprints. Cause I feel like there, this is something a lot of new designers, especially would really benefit from and would probably find a lot more success long-term as opposed to just sitting down and trying to design a game, you know, a giant game. Well, that's, that's a hard thing, especially at the beginning. So how can these help? How can these sprints help new designers? 
Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, and to reiterate kind of one of the points you made, a lot of new designers try and just make a huge game right from right from the beginning. And the problem is you 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 really don't have a starting point. You know, it's almost like a, a tangled ball of yarn. Like what you pull one string and it just tightens another one of the knots somewhere else. You can't untangle it. You, you have to get to the, the very beginning of that string, right? Um, and it's hard when you try and make a huge game like that from scratch without really knowing how all the different parts interact. So the the purpose really for me with these design sprints was to be able to identify all of the different possibilities that you could get out of each component. So as an example, you know, if you gave yourself, say, a handful of dice um, and you tell someone who's not a gamer or, or maybe um, early on in their design career, um, here's six dice, make a game out of it. It's going to be very likely that they're going to roll those dice and then have some kind of battle, right? Um, and you're like, okay, well, that's one thing that you could do with dice is roll them, um, but you could also use them as a counter. You could have a, um, you know, the six side being face up means you have six resources, or you could stack them, or you could um, throw them at each other or slide them across the table for some kind of dexterity. Or you could hide the value and pick a value and then almost like an auction mechanic, right? So there's so many little things that you could do with these dice if you just stop thinking about grabbing the dice and rolling them and comparing the highest numbers. Um, and even if you do do that, there's a bunch of other small little um, decisions that you could create, what I like to call catches, you know, what, what's the catch? Um, there's other little decisions you could make with, with dice even after you roll them. And so the idea with these design sprints is to make as many different types of games with one component as possible. And you, and you identify how to maximize the amount of game and, and the, uh, uh, the amount of fun you get out of a single component. And if you do that with dice and you do that with tokens and you do it with a bag and you do it with cards and you, you do it with as many things as you can, you start to really see the enormous potential that you can get. And we kind of see it, you know, I, I, I see games all the time. I just, uh, where, where it just kind of blows my mind. Like, wow, how did someone think of that? That's crazy. Um, just recently, I think I saw a, maybe it was a 10 sided die. Um, it was really large and the sides of the die, you actually like Velcroed different pieces on and you're building like a mm -hmm. different planet. I mean, it was like, whoa, it was, it was amazing. Um, but until you get, you know, you, you get your mind um, a little bit more free and think outside the box with what you can do with a component, you're not going to be able to really um, maximize those components to their fullest potential. You're going to keep thinking that every card is just, you know, uh, like a poker card and every die is just to be rolled and every board is just to be moved across. Um, but there's so many other things that you can do with these, with these components. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also just kind of like a muscle memory type thing. You know, in sports, you want to do something over and over and over again. That way it just becomes habit and you don't even have to think about it. And I feel like in creative endeavors, you know, if you're an artist, you know, one thing I, I was watching a, uh, almost like a Bob Ross kind of thing on YouTube where this guy was talking about mm -hmm. drawing and he was drawing like fantasy characters, things like that. And people were asking him, well, how did you, how did you get so good? And he kind of paused what he was drawing and he, he kind of switched over to another screen and he said, I'll show you. And he drew a line and he drew the same line and he drew the same line. Like, 30 times on this, on this digital screen. And he just kept drawing it over and over again. He said, I, I just draw lines over and over and over again until I get really good at drawing lines. And then I'll oh, draw wow. a curve line and I draw a curve line. And, I, and he just like, and he kept saying, it's just, it's just practice. You get to the point where your, your muscles, you, you get so good. And this is both mental and physical with, with art, you know, is that 
it just becomes nature. It becomes habit. And if you think about sports, right. if you have a kid that wants to play basketball, you don't say, okay, here's the basketball and here's how you shoot a jump shot and a free throw and a layup. And here's how you do a two point uh, or three point play. And here's how you inbound the ball. And here's how you inbound the ball when you're underneath the goal. Like you don't throw all this craziness at them. You say, here's a ball. See if you can bounce it. You know, like let's right. just dribble. Right. Okay, now we're going to work on a chess pass, and you kind of build your way up, and you build this foundation until eventually, you know, somebody gets to the point where they understand all the rules, and they understand all the nuance, and all the little things here and there, because you've built on that foundation. And I feel like with a lot of creative endeavors, people just jump right in trying to understand all the nuance, all the crazy detail of things, and they get frustrated because they're not any good. But of course, they're not any good. It'd be like giving a toddler a basketball and saying, "Here, you know, go go play in a game." Like it's not going to make right. sense. And so doing these exercises are so important. Now, do you have any other exercises like other than, you know, here's some components, here's some tokens. Like, do you do anything else that maybe even is more mental, especially with your design students? Um, yeah. So we, we do a different type of design sprint as, as well. Um, and, and that is essentially instead of just components, we do mechanisms. Um, yeah. So, you know, what are all the ways, make, uh, make a card drafting game with, with, you know, this series of cards. Um, and see if you can. And essentially what, what I do is once they make a game out of it, then I say, okay, you now you can't do this. Make another game. And so now the restriction is they have to make the same type of card drafting game, but they can't do something specific. And, and it, an example with that would have been with the dice. Like um, after you, I see all the games they make, I say, you can't roll the dice. Make another game. And they're like, what? Well, why do I make a game if I can't roll the dice? Um, and, and doing the same thing with different mechanisms. Um, and that's been, that's been really, um, yeah, that's been really beneficial to see them think about the, the mechanism in a totally different way. Um, I mean, besides that, I would say the, the really just the most beneficial thing is, um, explaining the rules to a a different group of people and then letting them play it. And then just watching what happens. We do a lot of that in class, um, where you make a game and then you give it to another group or you swap and then you see what happens. Um, and it's just really, it's really interesting when you get your mind off of your design and watch other humans actually experience it. And you're like, whoa, I didn't even think about, you know, that kind of behavior emerging from the design, but it did. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's jump into the topic at hand. We're talking about educational games that are also fun, but I want to, I mean, I want to get your perspective because, you know, we were talking before the show, you don't consider Genius Games to be an educational game company per se. You're not setting out to make educational games. You're, you know, you're just trying to make fun games that happen to have some like really interesting real life, you know, hard science, educational style stuff going on. And so before we get into it, first of all, how would you define an educational game? And then tell me about kind of your perspective on, you know, your company and where you fit in that niche? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question. And this is a topic that we have, um, I have some very uh, passionate uh, views on. Um, But uh, to start off, so an educational game, I I would say the focus of, of that term is, is on the word educational. And so an educational game is meant to specifically educate someone um, in something. And the interesting thing about that is that I, I feel like almost all games in a way are educational games. They can teach you something if you sit down and play them. The trouble with that term is that um, it has been used to negatively stereotype games that are meant only to educate, but have really no fun value to them, right? They're just not that fun to play, or they don't have any depth to them. Um, And so we like to refer to our games as um, traditional hobby games or traditional strategy games, 
with an accurate science theme. Um, and we do have a lot of uh, we do have a lot of people that still call them educational, and it's not like I'm, I'm you know I'm, it's not going to offend me. Um, but and we do sell a lot of games into educational spheres. But we design games specifically for the hobby gamer who's also a scientist or a science enthusiast or who has a spouse or a sibling or a parent or a, um, a, a son or daughter who's a scientist. And they can experience the tabletop hobby um, over a game that's accurately themed within the sciences. And, so, and that's kind of our core audience. That's our, core, that's our target customer. Um, now, if you're a chemistry teacher and you want to take one of our games about ionic bonding or covalent bonding and play it in the classroom, that's fantastic. And guess what? You're going to see it's extremely accurate and students will learn while they play the game because it is so accurate. And they're going to have a great time because the game's going to be designed for a hobby audience and it's going to be a good quality tabletop game. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my my take. Um it's and it's it's a little unfortunate over the last maybe few decades we've just seen so many you know quote educational games that were they weren't even really games they were more like memorization flashcards kinds of things and uh and that's not really when when you when you call that a game um you really do a disservice to what you know strategy board gamers are interested in um, so, and that's kind of why we, we stay away from that terminology at genius games. Yeah, that's a great point. I feel like I've seen a lot of educational games. They're really just worksheets. You know, it's like not very much mm -hmm. different from just any other activity you would do in a classroom or a classroom setting right. environment kind of thing. Right. And, but they try to throw a game mechanic on top of it, you know, but it really, there's not a lot of choice. There's not a lot of strategy. It's just like, oh, okay, this is just another way to learn math, right. I guess. And so like what you're, what you're doing is you're taking reality and you're finding ways to just in, you know create a game around it or a game out of it, which is really interesting. And people just really seem to be excited about these games. You, you know, you've had so many do so well on Kickstarter, yeah. which is another impressive thing we were talking about before the show is, you know, Kickstarter is a very interesting demographic of gamers. And you wouldn't think, okay, you know, all these people who love these like $100 super amazing miniature games. Oh yeah, they also love a game about the periodic table as well. But you've done extraordinarily well on Kickstarter. And so like, tell me why do you think so many people just continue to flock to your games? You know, they're excited about the next one coming out and, you know, they can't wait to see the next chemistry or the biology or whatever. Like, what is it about these games just draws people in. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I would say it's a combination of it being quality game mechanics and also accurate science. And because of that, you know, say you're a gamer and you have a friend who's a scientist or, you know, sibling, kid, spouse, whatever, um you and uh, you are not going to be afraid to take this game and put it in front of them because you know the science is going to be accurate. Or say you're a scientist and you're not really into gaming, but you've got a you know sibling, spouse, friend, parent, whatever that's really into hobby gaming. Well, you also don't have to be afraid of putting one of these games in front of them because you know the mechanics going to the mechanics are going to stand on their own and the game will be fun. And so I think um, I think people recognize that like oh wow finally someone is doing a game that's actually accurate to the sciences. And it's really fun. Um, and when they see the Genius Games logo, they can they can trust that brand and they can trust that the game is going to have both of those two things. Um, and you know, I, I I'm I'm just blown away that 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 other companies haven't started doing this. Um, but at the same time, I realize how much time and effort it is to make a game like this because I can't just take a few mechanics that work really well, slap them together, and find a theme and and um, and and hope it works. 
Um, and not that other designers are only doing that, but but we ha- if we have to stay accurate to the science, um, so it makes it very very difficult because I can't do you know I have I'm very limited in, in the types of mechanisms I can use and um, and you know um, resources and things like that I can put in front of people. Um, yeah, so I, I mean I think that's why, and, and I think people who have backed our previous campaigns will come back and back future campaigns because they they see the quality and we're also um you know we're trying to produce something not just not that's not just a good game and is accurate science but um has great components and great production quality and great artwork um thomas in uh poland he's our our uh, main artist he does most of our art for our games and he's just um very talented and his art is vibrant and colorful and really pops off the off the table. And so, you know, I think it's a combination of all those things, but, um, we are, uh, you know, gamers are, um, are just a group of big nerds and I love being a part of that group. Um, we love things that are really interesting and, um, unique and we love things that get our brain, you know, juices flowing and we love puzzles and we love challenges. Um, and I think that science does a lot of that in a way that is real. And, um, you know, I love playing sci-fi games, but at the same time, sometimes I'm just like, I want to bite into something real. Um, and, um, so yeah. And so I, I think, I think our stuff really taps into a lot of those things. Yeah, definitely. And so tell me about your inspiration process, like, especially in some of the games you've already done, like what was the the magical moment? You're like, Oh yeah, I can make this idea, this real life concept. I can turn that into a game. Tell me about how that works in your, in your brain. Yeah. So that, that's a really interesting process. Um, and if, if anyone is, is, um, really interested to hear more about this, um, I actually uh, just wrote an article for game trade magazine, um, GTM, and it, it's a two-part article. The first part will come out in February, and the, and the next part will come out in March. Um, or uh, yeah, in March. And um, the the whole two-part series is about well, we, we focused on cytosis. We did, we figured we just pick one game and focus on that. But essentially, we focused on cytosis and talked about the cell biology in that game and how it's accurate um, and how we came about making that game. But the the second part to that series is just called. Um, how to accurate, accurately design a highly thematic game. And it's all about the process that I go through. And so I can, I can kind of summarize that for you. But really, like, I mean, it's, I, I, I'm sure this has happened to other, uh, um, other listeners, but, you know, you've got your, your, this IP that you've been in love with for a while, whether it's like a TV show um, or a movie or a book that you read or, you know, whatever. And you see that there's a board game about this theme and you go out and you buy this board game and you're really excited and you sit down and you start playing it and, and you're having an okay time, but there's just all these things where you're like, Oh, that's not right. Or no, they would never behave like that. Or like, Oh man, this is so disappointing. I like, like you, you, you wanted it to be this accurate experience to the thing that you're in love with, but it, it just really falls short. Um, and I think that, I think a lot of that has to do with, um, with designers first making a game and then finding a, a theme that will fit that. And there's, I don't think there's a problem with that at all, unless your goal is to make a highly thematic game, then that is, that in my opinion is not the proper process to go through to make a, a highly thematic game. Um, what we do, what I do is the, the first thing I do is, is just, you know, drown myself in that theme. Um, learn everything I can. I usually spend hours and hours and hours um, researching a theme. 
Um, but but well, let me let me answer your your question real quick though before I go through that whole process. Just how do I even come up with the ideas in the first place? So obviously our brand is hard science. So I'm going to start there. But the, what I like to do is I like to think back to like you know high school chemistry, high school biology, college biology, and think about all the things that I studied. Where when I learned about that, I kind of went like, whoa, that is amazing. Um, as an example. Um, the periodic table. The periodic table is something that most people like have to memorize or think is so boring. But the idea that the the structure, the material structure of our entire universe can be boiled down to, well, uh, three little particles, the proton, neutron, and electron, and how they combine into roughly 118 different um, patterns, which are the 118 different elements that we have on the periodic table currently, and that that forms our entire universe. That is mind-blowing, and that we've structured all of that onto a table that you can carry in your pocket um, or on your phone or paste to your wall is is incredible, and that you can actually predict the behavior of so many of these elements based upon their location. Um, and those kinds of things just really blow my mind. So I was like, well, I should make a game about that. And we did. And that's called Periodic, a game of the elements. And the same thing with cytosis. I thought to myself, wait, so you're telling me that this, essentially the smallest, um, well, this isn't technically accurate, but the, 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 in the human body, the smallest um, functional living piece of material that our bodies are, are um, created by is a cell. And this cell is like, a little city that functions all on its own and and, and um, shares and collaborates information and resources from all the cells around it. And these cells have different functions specific to say muscles or your brain and your nerves or your skin. That to me is just mind blowing. And so I was like, well, I want to make a game about that. And so that's kind of the process I go to to, to get my theme originally um, is something that just really excites me about science is that that is like almost mysterious. And, um, there's a, there, you know, and so I start, I, I'm, I'm starting there. And one thing I would really like to do is to start covering topics that are really provocative or stuff that is, um, sort of hot in the media, like, um, CRISPR. CRISPR is like this technology that allows you to, um, cut and combine different sequences of, of genes and to essentially, you know, create whatever you want. Um, this is sort of the thing that people are talking about could, uh, could be the start of, you know, designer babies and things like that. And um, I think a topic like that is showing people how, how genetics works using this technology and some of the consequences of that through a game could be very, very informative. So maybe I'll pause there real quick because I've been talking for a little bit and see if you have any questions about that before I jump into my, my process of how to turn that into a game. No, man, you're cool. I'm just enjoying listening. I'm, I'm a designer trying to learn like, like everybody else listening to this. One thing I've, I've really found interesting is, you know, your game inspiration process is pretty much like everybody else's. You find something that excites you and you go, man, that needs to be a game, right? Because there have been so many times in my own design process, like, you know, I've, I've read something or I had this random idea or saw, saw something, you know, or a friend of mine mentioned something. I was like, man, that, sh- that should be a game. That'd be a cool game. And you could do this, you could do that. Okay, cool. And then just start working on it. And for instance, the other day, I was the other day, this is probably probably six weeks ago, um, my kids were like really wanting to play a board game, which I'm not, you know, we've got a couple games that are fun, I guess, but there are a lot of their games are kid games and they're trash. Right. Like they're, they're not fun. Oh. They're not games or activities. And so we, I was thinking about Candyland. I was like, man, Candyland is just, 
it's just not fun. Like you roll and or you move or you get the cards and you just move or you get spinner and you move. And that's it. I was like, well, right. what if, what if Candyland was fun? Like what if it had choices? Like what if you were defending Candyland? What if you had to defend the Peppermint Palace? And you know, what if you had real candy as part of the gameplay? And so like, what if when every time you, you took damage, you, you had, you, you lost one of your candies and you could just eat one of your M&Ms. It's like, well, you know, you got hurt, but at least you get to enjoy some chocolate. And so right. I started thinking through that and I was like, yeah, that could be a game. And so that's been the game I've been working on for, for quite a while. I'm super excited about it. And so I love that you're like, yeah, this is exciting. This is cool. Let's make it a game. Just with you, you're a big, you know, you're an engineer and a science nerd. And so your exciting stuff yeah. <laughs> is, is more slanted towards that direction. So that's, that's a really cool thing. Right. Uh, but yeah, right. tell me yeah. more about your, your actual process. Yeah. So once, once I, um, the first, so the first step for me is I go and I research that topic and I, I mean, I usually will spend hours and hours and hours, sometimes, you know, weeks and even months really digging into the details of a topic. Um, and then the second step is, um, and this is something that really might make people cringe, but I feel like this is sort of the difference between a game that feels highly thematic, that really feels like the thing that you want it to, and a game where the theme is slapped on. But um, the next thing I do is I make a simulation. I don't even start making a game yet. I essentially network mm -hmm. out all of the interactions and, and, and relationships between all of the things within that theme. Um, and in this article to GTM, um, one of the things I, I use this um, this uh, uh, this fictional TV show about you know a mafia family. And so imagine you've got like a parent who owes someone else um, one of their cousins money, but this cousin they put a hit out on someone else, and so this person wants vengeance on them, but the other person wants their money beforehand, and one of the other members of this mafia family is just trying to turn everyone into the FBI so they can get their um, they, they can escape to, you know, somewhere in the Caribbean with the, with the reward from the FBI. And so you've got all these inter interplaying pieces. Um, it would just be a tragedy if that ended up being a game where you're moving pieces along a map, correct, collecting resources and cubes, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't feel anything like that. But if instead you thought, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, I'm going to create a, a map of all the relationships, why this person wants to be close to this person but doesn't like this person. And then you, you establish goals and you, re, you put restrictions in people's ways for those goals. So as an example, let's say that um, Joey put a hit on Cousin Vinny or whoever else, and now someone wants to get revenge on him. But like we said earlier, um, the dad needs uh, the money that Joey owes him. So what if you gave um, all this information to players, but, but you limited it? So certain players know some of the information, and certain players have goals that are contrary to other players' goals. Um, and, and now what you're going to do is you're, gonna, you're essentially giving them information, allowing them to like behave and experience what it would be like to actually be a part of this, of this, um, of this family, right? Like I really want, I don't know if this person knows this information. So I'm going to kind of like get at it through, uh, through asking them other questions, but not too direct. So they don't know that I'm the person who actually, you know, put a hit on so-and-so, or I'm the one who owes this person money, or I'm the one talking to the FBI. Um, and so you're trying to really like get information from other people, really not sure who you can trust. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so that yeah, that third step then is is give players goals and put restrictions in their way. Um, and with cytosis, so an example of this. So first, I did a few hours of research and I got out my old cell biology textbooks and and I knew a lot about it from from university. Um, and then I created a um, a picture of a cell and I started inter 
um, interlacing all of the systems and, talk, and, and listing all the resources I would need to have. And through that process, one of the really difficult things that, um, that has to happen is, is we have to just remove non-essential components, right? Sometimes the, the, the complexity that you get when you map out a simulation like this, just, it's just too much for, for an actual board game. And so boiling it down to its most fundamental components and then giving, giving, um, um, creating goals that are accurate to, to, to what this process would look like. So in the cell, cells are trying to build hormones and enzymes and receptors, and they're also trying to detoxify themselves from things that the body is, is consuming on a regular basis. And so we made those the goals. Um, you're going to build hormones, you're going to build receptors, and you're going to build enzymes. And you're going to use resources, the resources that our cells actually use, and that's proteins and genetic material, which is mRNA, and lipids, which are like fats, um, and carbohydrates, which are things that we eat through our mouth and then um, our body uh, digests that and sends those carbohydrates out to our cells and our cells break them down and turn them into energy or ATP. And that's the other resource. Um, and so essentially players are trying to use those resources to accomplish those goals. And the restriction is the resources are limited and other players are going to um, take them when, when you might need them, right? So there's like a blockage in, in the cell. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of... Uh, uh, um, the process we went through to, to make that. And it's, it's cytosis is a worker placement game. So, you know, what you're essentially trying to do is activate different areas of the cell. And when you activate it, you collect the resources that are accurate to that. And that's how you're getting sort of these, um, this player interaction and, and blocking other players out from that, that worker placement mechanic. Um, and then once you have that, uh, the next, you know, the next, I would say thousand steps are just play, test and iterate, play, test and iterate, play, test and iterate. Um, and what you're really trying to do during that play test, uh, that, or the, those, the, the play tests moving forward is, is find the fun and then amplify that and then fix the bad. Right. Um, and there's a few things that, so these, th this is some of the advice that I, I give to my students. Um, when you think about a game, really people are not coming because of like the cardboard box. Um, they're not coming because of the card quality. They're, they're not going to play the game because they, they want to roll some dice. They're playing a game. They're sitting down and engaging in this game because it's going to offer a memorable and a, an enjoyable experience, right? That's why they're there to play the game, and that's what's going to bring them back to the game. If that experience is amazing, they're probably going to come back, and they're probably going to tell other people about that game, and that kind of game is going to sell because people are talking about it. Um, and if the experience is not very memorable and not very fun, they're probably not going to play it again. They're probably not going to talk about it. And that game's probably not going to sell a whole lot. Um, and so with my design students, I try and really, really beat this into their head. The prototype you are trying to make, the design you are trying to make is not to flatter you. It is the goal is to make something that is memorable. And if that is the goal, stop focusing on yourself and stop focusing on the 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 interesting things you're trying to do with the design and just listen listen to play testers listen to people playing the game and see what is frustrating them and see what they really like and they are enjoying and that's what you need to focus on um and one of the um one of the things i like to tell my students is is um worst worst thing first meaning fix the worst thing about the game first and, and i would think about it this way so imagine that you um you took a class in, I don't know, biology or whatever, whatever class, economics, and you're doing really, really well. You're getting high grades in all your assignments, but you bombed one or two of the assignments. At the end of the year, if you, if you got B averages on all your assignments, 
you're probably going to have like a C average in the class because of those two assignments that you bombed. So, so, so overall, it's lower than you had hoped and lower than the, the than what you have consistently making. But it's because of those two bombed assignments. If you try and go and fix, say, one of your your ninety two percent and jack it up to a ninety eight percent, you're not going to make a. It's not going to make a big impact on your grade. But if you go and you find that worst assignment and you raise that thing all the way up to the average, that'll make a huge impact on your average. Right? That's basic math. That's basic statistics. And the same way with a game, the, the, the one or two things that players are most frustrated by, most annoyed with, that's the, the most tedious, those are the things that are dragging the overall experience of that game down the most. If you fix those things first, you're going to see where the real fun in the game is because people are not so distracted by those, those few elements that are the most annoying about the game. Um, and then obviously once you find the fun, once you, well, I, I like to ask, I like to ask play testers right off the bat. I want to ask them two questions. Those two questions are what was the most frustrating time that you had during the game? At what point in the game were you the most frustrated? And so there's two things about that question. The first is that, um, everyone has to answer, right? I didn't say, were you ever frustrated? Yes, they could say, no, great, now you've lost a great opportunity. I say, at what point in the game were you the most frustrated? Now you've given everyone an invitation to speak very openly. Oh, I, I was most frustrated at this point in the game. Great, now you now you know when they're most frustrated. And if, if a lot of people are saying the same things over and over again, like, yeah, it really annoyed me when I put all that big investment in this thing and I rolled the dice and I lost it and I didn't get anything out of it. And everyone's like, yeah, that was really frustrating. And it wasn't a design element that you were actually trying to, to – uh, um, make a, a pain point, then that thing probably needs to go, right? There's a lot of people that are frustrated by that. So that's the first thing I ask. At what point in the game were you the most frustrated? That's how you identify the worst things. Um, and the second thing I ask is, at what point in the game were you having the most fun? Now, there's tons of other questions you can be asking, and all those other questions are great questions. But I focus on these two things because it, it points me directly to that worst thing and that best thing. And that worst thing needs to get fixed and that best thing needs to get focused on. So those, those are, um, yeah, those are two really important things. Um, lastly, I would say of, with my students, um, the, probably the most valuable tool, and this goes back to um, the game, that what people come for is an experience, not, not a physical product. Um, you just, you have to be a good listener. The quality that great designers all have in common is they are good listeners. They get that game out there, they get it play tested and they listen. There was a point when um, we were getting, um, cytosis play tested and, um, play test was over. Um, I'm getting feedback from everyone. And there's one person who is just fuming, fuming mad. And I said, um, I asked like, okay, you know what, well, what about you? What was the most frustrating element? And this person just said to me, if I ever bought a game like this in a store, I would light this piece of you-know-what on fire and throw it in the effing trash can. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, and I was really taken back. And I thought to my – and I got pretty defensive and I got pretty upset because that was, you know, kind of inappropriate. Um, but then I but then I was like, okay, well, you know, let's take a step back here. What What, what happened? Why were you so frustrated? And he said, well, I spent almost the entire game saving up for this one thing. And then in like two turns, this other player just came in and wiped all that out and took the lead. And I was like, huh, oh, wait. And I looked at what he was talking about and I looked at the process. And I, and, it, and I thought to myself, you know what? I actually didn't notice that. And he's totally right. Um, 
there's a there's an unfair advantage to this one strategy and, and this it completely wiped him out. Now, could he have given that feedback in a much more cordial and kind way? Of course. But had I got really defensive, I might not have I might not have seen this this uh, subversive little strategy that this other player was doing and that frustrated him so much. Um, so yeah, I mean, just just listening to to play tests is is um, is a huge tool for for designers. So yeah, those are, those are a bunch of things. I'm, I'm going to just keep talking and talking about game design if you don't shut me up. Or, or... No, that's good, man. I'm excited. I'm, again, I'm, I'm sitting here learning and listening. Now, one it's thing great. I've talked to several people in the past about is there, there's like game designers or just art, artists in general, creators in general, kind of come down to two different styles and some are artists and some are sculptors. And artists being, you know, you start with a blank canvas and you just start building on top of that. Or sculptors where you start with this giant hunk of rock and then you slowly, you know, make it smaller and you turn it into the thing that you want. Uh, you seem to be the sculptor type. It's like, all right, we're going to take this giant concept of, you know, some kind of scientific idea or, or thing going on. And then we're going to turn that slowly turn that into a game. And, and so one question I have for you, have there ever been, have you ever gotten excited about an idea or some kind of scientific, you know, concept? And you're like, yes, this needs to be a game. But then it turned out to be the, like this infinitely complex thing that you just weren't able to get it, you know, down to be concise enough to make it a game where, you know, the simulation was just so overbearing. There's too much going on that it just wouldn't work out as a game. Um, that's a good question. Um, so that hasn't happened yet, but I could imagine a number of, of um, ways that that could happen. We have gotten to the point where um, it did seem like the concept was just a little bit overwhelmingly complicated, and uh, we decided to make some take some liberties on what we were going to simplify, and we simplified it down so much that we were able to fit it in. So, um, it, yeah, it, it's not exactly what you're saying, but we, we did, we did end up finding a fix for it. Yeah. Cause I feel like figuring out what to kind of abstract out, you know, what to take away. I thought like this is why so many sports games don't do very well. There's so many details and nuances in sports that, you know, to figure out which ones to abstract. A lot, a lot of times people can't figure out which ones to kind of boil down and to make it a little bit, you know, it's not exactly the full simulation. So you have these sports games that are either like way too simple or way too complicated. It's hard to find your your spot there in the middle. And so I feel like with science, it, it could be the same kind of thing. Now, what what other yeah. kind of stuff are you excited about? Like what, what other games, you know, do you want to play or do you want to design that are kind of, you know, if, if they came out right now, you'd be like, oh, I'm picking that up. Or, you know, maybe you just want to design it yourself one day down the road. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so I I do some design in my free time um, just for myself. Like right now I'm building a, um, or designing, I should say, a uh, civilization building game. And the idea is, um, so, so I love civilization building games. I love it. That theme really, really intrigues me. I, I got really big into reading about the Fertile Crescent and, and, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Jared Diamond's book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, um, and a number of other books about just sort of how civilization began, right? And this stuff is really, really intriguing to me. But the trouble that I see with a lot of um, civilization building games uh, through the ages is like one, is, is one of my favorite games, and I love it. The trouble with a lot of these civilization building games, though, is that um, you, it, it takes a lot of investment to get going. Um, and what I wanted, I wanted a game where I really felt like I was starting from scratch and I didn't know anything like a, like a band of people would be early on. Here I am. We're a few people. We don't really know anything, but we know that we need to gather some resources. We know we need to feed ourselves and we know we need to probably put a roof over our head. Okay. Let's just start there. 
and you jump right in. You don't need to learn a bunch of rules. You don't need to know that and you know, a thousand years from now, you're going to have this technology and that technology. I just want to start collecting some resources and trying to put a, a, a roof over my head. And then you slowly and gradually learn more things about technology and learn more things about the world around you. And there's other people around you and you're interacting with them. And are they hostile or are they friendly? And can we trust them to do this? And, the, and, and you're hunting and you're, then you're getting a bow and a spear and moving up to a crossbow and and now you're building cabins instead of you know teepees and or whatever and and, and the the society is progressing and the governance strategy is progressing over time and so the idea with this game is that you start with just a small deck of cards and they're each a person and you can just go out and gather but as the game progresses it starts to really really open up and you're and and give you more opportunities to build larger structures and to and to expand your your little empire and it's it's almost like this is something that video games um, allow you to do that board games just seem like it's a huge hurdle right there's so many rules you have to learn but in a video game they can the the designers can just restrict so much of that world from you from the very very beginning um, and then you learn as you explore. The, the level or the world that you're in um, and you open up new sort of um, tech tracks and new technologies and new abilities and things like that as, as the game goes on. Um, and so I'm trying to essentially build a game like that where you're, you do start really simple and small, but then it really blossoms into a, a, a whole bunch of other decisions and things that you can do. Um, yeah. So, and, and there's a lot of games like that, that I'm just, I'm really interested in. Um, that um, I play on a regular basis that you know, have nothing to do with, with science, I guess. Yeah, very cool. Now let's talk about some more design challenges you've sure. run into, you know, creating these different science games. What, what are the other you know, pitfalls or things that you're like, all right, this is just not working or things that you've kind of had to abstract maybe a little more than you intended to? Mm. Like what other challenges have you seen? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, um, one of the things that we... Uh, more recently ran into so so with um, with biology games one of the really interesting things about biology is there's usually a process and and what you need to do is create a simulation and then um, you know, like I said before put goals and restrictions um, in people's way at, and and you can usually create a game out of that and then it's more about optimization with physics though physics is a very well physics is a physical science and it is it is about how the world functions on many, many scales. But if you're going to design a game about how a ball flies through the air, that's kind of dumb because you could just pick up a ball and throw it and you could watch it fly through the air. Um, so it's so it's really hard to make a board game about something like that. Um, so I've, I've had a very difficult time. Um, we've been wanting to design a game about physics for quite a while, um, but but it just wasn't working out. And what I ended up, um, so I am in the middle of designing a physics, a physics game right now, and the challenges there were quite different than some of the biology games. Um, and so one of the games that, that, the, that I'm working on um, right now, it's just titled The, the Physics Game, because we don't really know what it's going to be about yet. But um, what we, we, there's three, there's really that kind of um, um, three measurements in, in physics, if we could call them that. You've got time, you've got um, distance, and you have mass. And these three things make up um, most of the ways that we measure the universe around us. Um, and you've got others like temperature, but but um, that doesn't come in quite yet. Um, and as, as an example, velocity, so the speed at which something is moving in a specific direction, um, is is a distance over time. Well, acceleration is just velocity that's changing over time. So it's still distance and time. 
And then now a force, so like if I was to push something and put a force on it, well, now that's just acceleration of mass, so something that has mass. Um, and then you can keep going. You can go into energy and you go into power. And these are the kinds of things that you learn in a basic physics course. But they're just equations. And that's boring. So how do you actually turn that into something that's fun? Uh, that's been a huge challenge. And, and so the way that I've tried to do it right now is essentially there's a, there's a Rondell mechanic. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with the Rondell mechanic. But, but what it is is um, you have a, um, a series of steps that players can choose in, in, in sequence. And um, the later steps are much more uh, profitable or valuable. But if you jump up to one of those later steps, the players behind you are going to get um, – there's a couple different ways to do it. Um, but the, the, the way that the game that I'm making currently stands is it's sort of like it's, the last, it's always the last player's move, meaning the player that is, that is on the least valuable spot, it's always their turn. So they could just move one spot at a time, collecting everything until they're in front, and then it's the the um, again the last player's turn. Um, but if the, at any point that last player jumps way up to one of the more valuable spots and grabs a bunch of resources, now everyone else is going to keep taking small turns until they get up to that point. And the that that mechanic is just so elegant and so clever, and it's and I think it's perfect for something like this where you have a bunch of resources and you're not really sure, or even a bunch of actions and you're not really sure how to disseminate them. That Rondell mechanic adds the the player choice to player decision is just how much of uh, of a risk or or um, or how much value does one player place over certain resources that 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 um, at the expense of letting other players just take multiple turns. Um, and there's a few other ways you could do that, but but um, yeah, that's currently that was a huge challenge for us. Um, that game was really boring for the first three or four play tests because we just couldn't figure out how to get that. This, these resource allocations working, and, and then we introduced the Rondell mechanic, and it really seemed to smooth things out and, and make it fun. Yeah, very cool. All right, let's let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk from the business sure. side of things. What have been the challenges you've run into as far as marketing these games? You know, kickstarting these types of games. Tell me about those issues. Oh man, there's so many. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I could I could talk about five to ten different things here that are challenging. But I, I would say the, the first thing is okay. If someone's going to launch a Kickstarter campaign, the first thing they need to know is exactly who this game is for. Um, and um, so with us, we know that our games are science focused. So we're going to target gamers who are scientists. We have a brand of of uh, and an audience of people built up. So if we were to launch a game right now on Kickstarter about you know I don't know. Um, backpacking I, do, I really don't think that would do very well um, and that's because our audience really really expects a certain type of game from us right so so the first the first thing i would say is know exactly who your audience is and as you make your first game and your subsequent games think about what you what your brand should be think about who your company what your company is what is your what is your right now i mean we have a very clearly articulated mission and vision our, our, our tagline is um, credible science and credible games, right? What is it? What is your tagline? What do you want people to remember your company for? Because your first game is going to dictate a lot of that. Um, and as you grow as a company, you know, if people don't even know what, 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 what to expect out of, out of you, then, um, you're going to lose, you're going to lose a lot from the very beginning right there. Um, and then on Kickstarter, one of the things I've noticed, the, uh, one of the mistakes that a lot of people make on Kickstarter is, they don't with their title and their description. They don't clearly explain what, like what what this thing is. Um, if you are making a game that is about a sci-fi dragon world with um, minis 
and a specific type of interaction and people they they don't understand that until like you know 30 seconds in down the page they read about it you've you have already lost like 80% of your potential backers cuz they're not even going to get that far they're not going to be that interested to read on if if you haven't already caught them so in your title and in your blurb you need to explain exactly what this game is about and even that it is a game i've seen so many kickstarter campaigns that you get to the page and it's you know the mystery boat adventure whatever and you're like what 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 is this and you realize after you get down on the page that it's actually a board game um you like that that that's terrible um so right away they need to see in the title and the blurb exactly what this game is about right those keywords that you know your target customer is going to be triggered by um and then and uh, i mean on the page I, there, obviously there's a lot of new creators out there who launch without game reviews um and having a bgg page and you know bgg it's it's it is the bible of board gaming um and so if you don't have a page there um and you don't have reviews up well i mean how are supposed to how, how are people supposed to 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 trust this right um, and so, yeah, those are some things right away. Obviously, the art, you you want to have really captivating artwork, and your cover image should show that. Um, you know, one one of the things I think is really important if 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 you take your preview and look at it on a, bu- on a bunch of different devices, and ask a few different people. If you're looking at it through a laptop, or you're looking at your iPhone, or, or whatever you're looking at at the campaign through, um, do they know what this thing is right off from the title, from the cover image? Is it intriguing to them? Um, can they tell you information about it? Because when they start sharing that link, when you launch that image that you have up there, once it's gone, once it's on Facebook, you know, once it's on a lot of the social media sites, that cover image is going to be remembered. Um, and if you try and change it, you try and change information. A lot of times, um, those social media platforms don't don't change that information. Um, and so, if it's not clear from the beginning, you're kind of you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Um, yeah. And so these these are you know and, and thinking. If um if I'm if I'm hearing about a campaign for the first time because I'm scrolling past it on on my Facebook news feed, like that is your that is your three second uh, possibility to capture that person's attention and get them to click. Have you done everything that you can do with that cover image, with that title, and with that blurb to get them on that page? And then once they get there, you know, so you, I I like to think you've got really two steps. Um, you've got getting people to the page. And then you've got once they're there, getting to become a backer, getting people to the page. Have you reached out to media outlets? Have you reached out to all the game news sites? Um, have you sent press releases to to these people to notify them of launch? Have you set up a Facebook event page? Have you know all these all these ways to drive traffic to the page? And then once they're there, is that page clear? Is it captivating? Do the reward levels entice people? Are they are they too expensive? Are they um, priced correctly? Is um, is the do you have obvious grammar mistakes on there so that, that turns people away? Because if the page looks, you know, if the page looks unprofessional, then why would I ever assume that the game that I'm going to receive doesn't look the same, unprofessional, with an unedited rulebook and everything else, right? So I mean, these are some of this stuff is obvious, but some of this stuff is is just really thinking about who your target customer is. How do I focus on? How do I focus my language and keywords on them? How do I make sure that it's clear so that when they see these keywords, they see this page, it will interest them. And then reaching out to the right media outlets that my target audience is already being influenced by. Um, yeah, I think these are some of the keys to Kickstarter. And then once you do follow up projects, 
is it on brand with what people expect from your company? Um, with us, it's it's a little bit easier for us to be on brand. Well, I don't know if I'd say easy, but um, uh, we know people know who we are and what we do. And I, there is a game that we launched a while back called Virulence, an infectious card game. Um, and it's it's a great game, but I, this, this is an interesting exercise in game design and branding. Um, I designed this game, Virulence, by um, I was trying to teach my students and my game design students that you could take a few different mechanics and just mash them together and make a great game out of it. So I did um, uh, betting and set collection, and it's a, um, I made this blind betting game. It's like the second half of For Sale, where you have a bunch of cards that are um, resources, and you put them face down blind. Everyone does, and you reveal them at the same time, and the highest number gets to choose from the resources in the middle first. And the resources in the middle score you points based upon collecting sets. I mean, it's that, it's that simple. That's the whole game. And it was a great game, and it was so fun. Um, and I still think it's a really fun game. And I'll play it with my friends back to back to back because it's just a clever little game. But I couldn't publish it because it didn't have a science theme. So what did I do? I made a big brand mistake, and I slapped the science theme on it. And guess what? It's the one game that everyone plays and says, that was a really fun game. But it really doesn't feel like one of your games. And that's true because the, the science in it is not accurate. The science was was forced into it so that I could publish it. Do I regret it? I mean, I made some money on it, and um, and it's a really fun game, and I, I appreciate that I have it, but it really, really confuses people. When they get all the other games and they, they play them with their friends, they're like, whoa, that was amazing. It was so accurate. Oh, that was really fun, and it was so accurate. And they play variants, and they say, well, that was really fun, but it wasn't very accurate. And like, yeah, 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 okay, I'm sorry. And we've even thought about removing it from our line because of that. Um, so anyway, that was a, um, you know, uh, a, a rabbit trail about um, some of the, the mistakes I made in the past. Uh, but from now on, I, uh, the games that we make are going to be on brand. Um, we will design a game around a science theme rather than designing designing just a game and slapping a science theme um, on it. Um, and, you know, we, we learned a lesson. Yeah. And you make a really good point about attention, right? You only have so much time. It's very, I mean, we're talking a matter of seconds to grab somebody's attention with your game, whether it's on Kickstarter or just marketing in general or sitting on the, the shelf at the game store. And so how important those few seconds are, you know, I was watching a video earlier today, actually, and it talked about how, you know, a lot of people think we're in a information economy, but that's not true. There's an abundance of information uh, with the scarce, the scarce resource now is attention. And we live in an attention economy because there's a million different distractions constantly trying to pull people in every single direction right. and with, with game design and with, with uh, or games being published in Kickstarter, man, you're, there's so much noise out there and it's just hard to stand out. And so you, you bring up a lot of uh, really, really good points. Well, John, man, I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. You sure. have any kind of like closing thoughts, closing advice for somebody that's maybe working on a game that's fun, but also maybe has some educational aspects to it. What would you tell them? Um, well, go read that article in Game Trade Magazine in um, February and March. That that um, is a, a lot more specific, thought out information on how to design a highly thematic game. Um, definitely get it in front of scientists. If you want to design a game that's science-themed, get it in front of scientists and let them pick it apart and say, this this is working, this isn't working um, from a science perspective. Get it in front of gamers. Is what is it fun or this isn't interesting, right? Um, listen, get it play-tested as, as much as possible and listen to those, those play-testers. And if you don't want to publish it yourself and it's good and it's scientifically accurate, then pitch it to me because I'd love to publish it. Um, and if anyone's really interested in, in um, designing the game like that, reach out to me and you know we're, we're always looking for games to publish. 
Um, so yeah, those are the few things that I would say. There's a lot of resources out there online. Um, you know, get listen to those resources. You've got this podcast. You've got Ludology. You have a number of blogs out there talking about um, game design. Um, just just learn as much as you possibly can. Um, and I, I think that's um, I think that's really critical. As far as updates from us, we do have a game. Um, if this if this podcast goes live after March 5th, the game will be live on Kickstarter right now, and that is a, for a game called NerdWords Science. So NerdWords is our first large group party style game, our first word game. Everything before this has been um, sort of more strategy focused. This is it's a really really clever game that I co-designed with um, Eric Slauson, um, and. He, he and I uh, met up at Gen Con and we're talking about games that we wanted to make together. And, and this kind of came out and he came up with this really clever mechanic where we are, um, you are trying to identify a specific science term through, um, through giving clues associated with that science term. And all of the clues must begin with a letter in that science term, except for the first letter of that word. So as an example, something like if the, if the science term was volcano, you could not say the word volatile because it starts with a V and volcano starts with a V, but you could say something like um, lava or outside because L and O are both in the word volcano and they're both associated with, with volcano. And so um, teams are competing versus each other to um, give these clues and try and identify the science term um, at hand. Um, it's a really clever, fun little game that we're, we're pretty excited about. Yeah, very cool. And so, yeah, this podcast will... will... Will launch coinciding with that uh, Kickstarter, and so yeah, hope that uh, goes really well for you. But John, again, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with all these really cool games that also teach you a little bit of uh, something. Good luck with the Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Cool, thank you so much, Gabe. Appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?